Six o'clock in London, it's 1 p.m. in New York. Hope you're enjoying lunch. It's 1 a.m. in Hong Kong and 3 a.m. in Sydney. 10 a.m. in the morning in San Francisco and 10.30 at night in Mumbai. For the second week in a row, if you're watching us by flickering candlelight with a generator giving you power to access the interweb. What else can I say but good morning, Texas. Not sure this week whether it's still the hangover uh, from the weather leading to the power cuts of last week or whether you're just using candle power to assuage your weather bills. Whether it's those power bills or anything else, greetings, good morning and good afternoon and good evening, depending on where you are in the world today. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Patrick L. Young, the IPO video live stream. Seas 4, episode 3, we're coming of age this evening, it's number 21, starts here. Bond folks, uh, with perspective, may have been perturbed by the style of the news, more than actually the news itself over the course of the last week, when we heard a lot of giddy reports that, well, overnight, the US Treasury 10-year rocketed, and similar hypey emotive language was used to a giddy 1.3% yield. Moreover, ladies and gentlemen, the yield curve was declared to be steepening. I was left thinking, something which starts at a handful of basis points on one month and ultimately reaches 2.08% for 30-year money is an appropriate Shrove Tuesday yield curve. By historical standards, it looked as flat as a pancake to me. And of course, don't be pedantic. I mean, things have got, whoa, immeasurably worse during the course of the week in the world of the bond market. Good grief. By last night, the 10-year bond yield had risen to 1.4% and the 30-year to a whisker below 2.2%. Good grief. 80 basis points for 20 years of risk, please. Meanwhile, of course, over at the Bank of England, they've got one of the leading panjandrons there. He was pointing out the fact that he doesn't think that he'll ever see 5% interest rates again in his lifetime. Meanwhile, in signs of a bull market for the weekend's virtual cocktail party discussions, number umpteen, I particularly like this magnificent headline. What is up with Nepali TikTokers pretending to be share market experts? Well, are Nepali TikTokers the new shoeshine boys? Oh, that harks back to that excellent conversation we had with Dominic Frisbee on the IPO vid just a few months ago. All this and more, ladies and gentlemen, much, much more during the course of the past week has been covered in greater detail in Exchange Invested Daily, the unique newsletter of the Bourse of Business. If you'd like to read more and become a subscriber, send us an email, hit me up on social media, wherever you're watching this today. Patrick L. Young's the name. And we'll be delighted to get you signed up for a 30-day free trial. Meanwhile, of course, ladies and gentlemen, let's share the love. I mean, I know we're coming up towards Easter. And one of the great things that is happening in the world at the moment is the fact that we are gaining subscribers by the week. We are gaining viewers by the week. But we would still love you to share a little bit of love. Please, 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 may we have a little bit of love along the bottom of your social media feed. Hit that like button, ladies and gentlemen. And let's get this thing, this show, all the way up so that we can pay tribute to our magnificent guests. Speaking of which, this evening we have Dr. Richard Smith, 
The Doctor of Uncertainty. What an epic title, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Richard Smith is a Berkeley mathematician and a PhD in system science. He's a fintech entrepreneur and CEO of the Foundation of Study of Cycles, an organization in my youth I used to read with great interest, many of their publications. Dr. Smith has built a reputation as the Doctor of Uncertainty amongst his academic peers, and he's headed He's helped government agencies and Fortune 500 companies, including the likes of Pfizer. Gosh, there's a company you don't hear much about these days in COVID times. And the likes of Johnson & Johnson makes sense of complex sets of data. He's an expert in risk management. He can provide us with critical insights. We're looking forward to that this evening. To help empower investors on all levels. Some of Dr. Smith's findings are just, well, what can I say, ladies and gentlemen? Stunning. His, imperial data, his empirical data-driven proof that even the world's best investors, from Warren Buffett to Carl Icahn to David Einhorn and many, many more, could see their results significantly improved through the use of technology that helps course-correct irrational tendencies and cognitive biases. What an interesting concept that Warren Buffett has some irrational tendencies, apart from his McDonald's and Coca-Cola fixation, of course. <laughs> Dr. Smith's software is backed by proprietary algorithms and a Nobel Prize winning research. He served over 25,000 investors and helped steward more than $20 billion in assets. Good evening, Richard. It's a pleasure to have you with us this evening. Where in the world are you today? I am in Southwest Virginia in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and I was on a generator with candlelight last week. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted we didn't have you booked for last week then. That was such, yes. a, such a joy that we had, uh, we had a completely different guest in our paradigm. Thank you for that, Lee Hodgkinson. Um, so, look, very interesting. I mean, one of the things that stands out for me instantaneously as someone who's always been interested in the history of investing, always fascinated by and a, an ardent student of markets like myself, the foundation mm -hmm. of the study of cycles in itself, yes. an evocative, interesting name in the history of financial market analysis. Absolutely. And uh, 80 years old, we're just celebrating our 80th anniversary. We just published the 80th anniversary issue of Cycles magazine. It's free online right now at cycles.org. We were founded by Edward R. Dewey. Um, and, uh, you know, who was a polymath of his own. He was the chief economist in the Hoover administration, and he was tasked with trying to figure out what caused the stock market crash of 1929 and the ensuing depression. Uh, he talked to 100 economists and got 100 different answers and decided to uh, start looking in other directions. <laughs> and uh, he discovered cycles in the markets and then started to connect those cycles to other areas of nature and life, including uh, wildlife um, populations and, uh, and other cycles, and started the Foundation for the Study of Cycles with a pretty illustrious board, you know, including um, chairman of the Smithsonian uh, and a number of other, you know, significant uh, leaders of the time. So it's great to be bringing the Foundation back to life and uh, helping the public reconnect with this worthy institution. Absolutely fabulous. I mean, it's great to hear because Dewey, as you say, was a legend in markets at a point in time when we had so many people who were looking beyond the pure 
ability, uh, possibly yeah. brackets, sick brackets of the economists of the time of the 1920s and 30s to try and make sense of these yeah. sorts of things. And um, it certainly strikes me as interesting that you're saying, you, you know, you're 80 years old this year, so that's what a Kondratiev wave plus a decent Fibonacci retracement, <laughs> um, which makes obviously for quite an interesting cycle in itself. And the whole, the whole institute has been through incredible times, yet the cycles yeah. still seem to remain remarkably relevant. Yeah. Well, I, I actually think Dewey was one of the original behavioral economists. Mm -hmm. So I think Dewey, you know, he he certainly was somebody who was deeply interested in and passionate about data. And, but I think he also was looking beyond data and trying to understand patterns um, more broadly. And I think that that is a very relevant question today. You know, Dewey would actually, of course, be um, beside himself with the access to data and analytics that we have uh, access to ourselves today. But, um, you know, how do we actually connect that data to um, our lives and what's going on in the world? And, you know, it's not just all data. So we do need to study the data. We need to find the cycles, but we also need to kind of connect them to, you know, the bigger picture. Excellent. So therefore, ladies and gentlemen, you've got one hour this evening to connect to the bigger picture through cycles. What would you like to ask the doctor of uncertainty, Richard Smith? He's here. Just drop us a question on whatever social media you're watching us through this evening. We're live on Facebook, LinkedIn, and of course, also YouTube. So looking at the center of, you know, the center for the foundation of cycles, what is your process at the moment? What are you actually trying to get out there in terms of the message of the cyclical economy, as it were? Well, uh, we certainly have technology of our own um, that uses uh, digital signal processing and Fourier uh, mathematics to detect cycles in time series data. So you can go to the Foundation for the Study of Cycles and you can look at uh, different indices or um, economic indicators and detect cycles in them. One of the big ones we were looking at um, over the past month, Patrick, is the uh, name data in AAIM National Association of Active Investment Managers, mm -hmm. and uh, you know how uh, long they are the market right now, and they are as long as they've ever been in the uh, 21st century. I think 100 and almost 110 or 120 percent long the market, so you know uh, leveraged long, and um, and that happened. It tends to peak about every. 184 weeks, so a little, you know, maybe three and a half years. And those often tend to coincide with uh, tops in the stock market uh, and bottoms as well. So um, I, a lot of our data and a lot of our analysis does suggest, you know, that we're closer to a, uh, a topping in the economy and in the stock market right now um, than we are to a bottom. Interesting. So we do that kind of analysis. Mm -hmm. That's 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 quite intriguing altogether. I mean, looking at the the cycles, and certainly one other statistic I noticed this week, which was fascinating, was in a in a month where you cannot seem to manage to read any positive coverage of Turkey. I noticed that foreign investors are now holding the least Turkish equity in history. So uh, who knows? Maybe there's a big sell America by Turkey trade on in the short term. Uh, it's it's fascinating to look at the the data that emerges from these sorts of these sorts of spaces. So. Tell us a little bit about yourself then. You're running the Foundation for the Study of Cycles these days. You're a polymath in your own right. You're a, 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 
really a, a very well, highly credentialed mathematician. Um, when you look at the whole issue of where we've got to with the markets and cycles and so on, how did you get here? How did you get involved in the in the foundation and how did your career evolve? Sure. Well, you know, I think that where I've been really interested personally for a long time is kind of in the relationship between models and the real world, right? So uh, my PhD work was in information theory, essentially, and decision-making under uncertainty. And so you'd have all these, all this ability to model things and to even model the things that we're uncertain about that we don't you know, know how it's gonna turn out yet, right? And, but yet, you know, we put a lot of false information into those models and how do we be more honest about the uncertainty that we face in decision-making and not kind of let bad assumptions propagate through our seductively, you know, mechanized decision-making process, right? Which everybody who participates in the markets faces this dilemma, right? We all wanna use data. We all wanna make decisions based on data, but how do we, um, really acknowledge the uncertainty that we face, recognize that the model is not necessarily reality, is, you know, is not reality. And how do we um, manage that interface between models and reality? And of course, the markets are a wonderful place to do that. And I think that, uh, that that is what Edward Dewey was interested in too when he started the Foundation for the Study of Cycles. Fascinating, absolutely intriguing altogether. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a question for Richard. Uh, just drop it into comments. We'll be delighted to answer it. So moving from the, the Foundation to Study of Cycles itself, yeah. I mean, right. you've obviously had a, quite a, a large media footprint, partly as a result of the Foundation and so on. And that's driven you to have mm -hmm. a, a huge interest because, well, you've become very, very heavily engaged with the retail investing fraternity. Yeah, well, I've always been interested in, you know, I, I was a re I am a retail investor <laughs> myself, and uh, I have always been uh, very passionate about the opportunity that retail investors have to really engage in and benefit from uh, involvement in capital markets, right? There's all this talk going on about democratization of markets right now, if you've been following GameStop and Robinhood, et cetera. I was just listening to Larry Tab from Bloomberg talk to Doug Sifu from Virtue, right? And uh, talking about the democratization of markets, that access to markets is, um, is democratization and lowering transaction costs gives access. Um, I'm not so convinced that that uh, is really the uh, holy grail for the retail investor. And I, um, you know, I really want to see the retail investor engage in our capital markets and succeed in our capital markets long term, you know? And just having access doesn't equal success and having free trades and low transaction costs doesn't equal success. So this is something I'm really interested in talking with you about today, Patrick, because of your knowledge of market structure. You know, you've been an insider in the markets uh, you've seen things from the inside out. And I think there are big questions today around how are we as the public, you know, going to really engage, not just in markets, but I think in the economy more generally, more broadly, um, in an effective and successful way where we're not simply kind of being, you know, uh, 
uh, feeder fish for, you know, for the sharks and whales. Well, what always interests me, and it's always been my constant, I suppose, bugbear with the financial industry is you look at the way that it treats retail investors. And I mean, if you go to hospital and you've got some monumentally terrible disease or illness and they're about to do surgery, somehow or other, the surgeon always comes around and he sits on the side of the bed and no matter whether that's big or small surgery, he goes, well, you know, we're just going to, we're going to give you a bit of a sleep and we're going to pop something in and we're going to do this, that and the other. And, you know, I, I remember taking my wisdom, getting my wisdom teeth out many, many years ago and, you know, it was like, well, we're just going to set you down and we're going to have to pull these teeth out and then you'll be a little bit sore in the morning. That's okay. I mean, what they don't tell you, of course, is the fact that actually Nurse Ratchet is holding your neck bent double over the back while some psychotic guy has four feet pliers and a power drill in your mouth, which is certainly how it feels a day later. But the point is, they're capable of explaining to you what's going to happen. And you look at the finance industry and you ask anybody anything in the finance industry and they all go, it's complicated. I'd love to tell you, Richard. You know, you're a nice guy, Richard. And uh, yeah. you've been to this place called Fur uh, Kelly or wherever it is. Did they teach you? Okay. Oh, you did math. Oh, okay. And, and that's the thing that I find incredible about the finance industry because yeah. the finance industry spends a whole period of time building its mystique. And I always think it's just insecurity. And, and, and I find that really funny. Um, but yeah, I think it's a lot less complicated than uh, most people make it out to be. Oh, you know? yeah. um, so what I, my first big aha in the market. So I started this you know, website in 2005 called tradestops.com. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, it was a trailing stop loss alert service. So it sent okay. out alerts, you know, hey, you're tracking a 25% trailing stop, your stock just fell from $100 to $75. And uh, I'm letting you know that you hit your trailing stop. And this was before they were available in the brokers, etc. Right. Mm -hmm. And through that, and then through my background, my PhD research, where I'd studied Kahneman and Tversky and prospect theory and decision making under uncertainty. Um, I realized that what was going on with most people in the markets boils down to loss aversion, right? And this is what two Nobel prizes in economics, first Daniel Kahneman in early 2000s, and then Richard Thaler, you know, now he's at MIT, uh, that we hate to lose. Surprise, surprise. But the fact that we hate to lose has different consequences depending on whether we're underwater on an investment or we're winning on an investment investment trade. Let's just call it a yeah. speculation, right? Time frame is the only difference. So when we're losing, the fact that we hate to lose makes us not want to sell because losing is tantamount to, uh, I mean, selling is tantamount to losing. So when we're losing, we become risk seeking. We take on more risk to avoid selling, okay? So we'll double down, we'll turn a short-term trade into a long-term investment. I got tons of great stories of <laughs> clients, you know, rationalizing their, uh, their uh, losses to me. Um, but yeah. then conversely, when we are up on an investment, we, our, our loss aversion attaches itself to our profits. And yeah. so we become fearful of losing our profits or risk averse. Yeah. with our winners. So we're risk seeking with our losers. We're risk, we're risk averse with our winners. Meanwhile, markets can remain irrational longer than we can remain solvent in both directions, right? Up or down. 
And so we essentially have this kind of built-in behavioral bias that allows us to be victimized by five standard deviation events to the downside and not enjoy comparable you know, victories by uh, five standard deviation events on the upside. And um, so, you know, to me, that is one of the biggest things that anybody involved in the markets needs to understand and needs to mitigate. And that's why I say it's a lot less complicated than people make it out to be. You know, you really have to have a system with an edge and then you have to make sure that you are not risk seeking with your losers and risk averse with your winners. And I think in many ways, you know, that... Uh, that is the recipe for success. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And indeed, in, in, you know, in breaking news, for all those investors who invested within 20% of the all-time highs of the Japanese stock market, only 32 years later, you're only 3,000 points out of the money on the Nikkei die after it's been up to 39,000 and all the way back down to whatever it was, 7,000 or something was the lowest. So, yes, I mean, uh, the prospect of doubling down is, is quite sensational because you can manage to, to lose so much money as you go along. And certainly the, the risk aversion issue is, is key. I think the other, the other, the one thing that is interesting you know, what you were talking about earlier in terms of discussion about access to the markets and costs are cheaper. Totally agree. I mean, cost to access the market is much cheaper. But of course, there's one whole issue between what is cheap and what is um, free, which we've been talking about in the show before. We'll get back to it in a minute. But, yep. but I actually think, you know, the biggest oddity that's going on is, has been until very recently, the inability of the financial markets establishment to appreciate that Pretty much if you give people a generation, I mean, 20 to 40 years, they will tend to learn the stuff that was regarded as being the near quantum theory of the previous generation. I mean, that's how knowledge drips down because mm -hmm. you went to Berkeley and you studied all these incredible names and you're reading about people, you know, you're reading by people like Kahneman, Tversky and so on, who've now become much more popular and gradually they'll feed in. And indeed, as you've done, you've mentioned inadvertently or Deliberately, but on passant, John Maynard Keynes a multiplicity of times, and nobody was really paying attention to what he was doing in 1946 to 50. But that was the point in time when he was starting to get all of this stuff out there into the outside world, if not before. And yeah. it's, it's fascinating because the the financial establishment in the whole GameStop thing, I thought was very funny because they can't cope with the idea that. For example, lots of retail investors have started trading derivatives, futures and options. And this has always been a point for me because I used to have lots of arguments with, when I used to appear very often on CNBC, they were apoplectic if you said, well, this thing's happening in the options market. It's interesting because it's going to have an impact on this stock for two days. Mm -hmm. And they go, no, 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 we can't talk about that. And, and 50 retail advisors who appeared once a month on CNBC would all write in and, and essentially no platform me, even though that was sort of 20 years before anybody got around to no platforming. And it was very interesting because the simple truth was this information was going to come. And if you go to YouTube tonight and you're not watching IPOVid, the chances are that there are 50,000 videos teaching you how to trade options that are going to be there. Now, some of them are pretty shonky, but a huge number of them are actually remarkably well done. I'm not suggesting those people are total experts in everything they're talking about, but there's certainly at the same level of understanding as you know the car sites where they're telling you how to tune your Chevy or whatever. And those are mostly retail names. And, and that's a, a big change for me in the total, the knowledge base in the digital yeah. world is changing what we know. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think that is an encouraging part of what's going on today. I mean, how many people even knew what payment for order flow was, you know, six months ago, right? But now it's actually entered the public consciousness. So I am, you know, I'm really excited about the next generation of, in, of, of investors and this interest in the markets among, uh, you know, younger people. And yeah. I think you're absolutely right that they are, um, learning a lot as they go. And, you know, I certainly hope for more and more transparency uh, from existing institutions uh, instead of, you know, more regulation. Um, because I think if you dish it out to the younger generation that they're going to, you know, soak it in like a sponge. They yep. are showing profound interest in the markets. And I think they're really excited about it. And I think if we get them really engaged, um, that would be excellent for our uh, economy and for our future. You know, my big fear right now, Patrick, is that we're going to see something like a, you know, 2000, March 2000 dot com bust. And, um, you know, that a whole generation of investors are going to get turned off by the markets. And I think that, you know, that can happen if we don't really educate people if we kind of allow this, you know, knowledge gap between more experienced market participants and new market participants to, yeah. you know, lead the market to, um, you know, unbalanced extremes. And that's a real concern for me, you know, because this does feel um, reminiscent of 1999 and 2000, what's going yeah. on in the markets right now, if you were involved at that time, which I'm sure you were, you know, and I know it's different, um, but, it's also familiar, you know, and there yeah. are 20 year cycles <laughs> and, uh, you know, history may not repeat, but it does rhyme. And, uh, you know, so how can we help young people really, you know, how can we capitalize on this interest of young people in the markets and really bring them along, you know, uh, so that they don't have to kind of, you know, go bankrupt a few times before, uh, they really establish a um, a balanced and effective relationship with capital markets. That would be, you know, something I dream about. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think the other thing is to the, another strand also is possibly that the fact that a lot of the people investing at the moment via the GameStop Wall Street bets craze have been mm -hmm. people that previously invested in highly speculative instruments, which were actually off exchange. I mean, they were on the pink sheets, maybe they were on yeah. CFDs, they were on spread betting, they were on foreign right. exchange trading. Now they're in markets. And I think that's the best thing, that they're with, they're with us in the regulated world and we want them to succeed. And, and I suppose, therefore, that, well, we're going to segue a little bit. We'll come back to the retail traders in a second because we've got a great yeah. question from Thierry Duranton. Hello, Thierry. Good evening. Thank you very much for your question this evening. So it would be interesting to ask Dr. Richard Smith's point of view and what he feels about Bill Gates saying Bitcoin is only for billionaires like Elon Musk. So what do you reckon? I think that's absurd. Um, so I think Bitcoin is here to stay. I think that Bitcoin and you know cryptocurrency and blockchain in general are essentially going to be the basis for a new internet um and it's an important part of our future so 
At the same time, you know, that does not mean you go back up the truck and buy Bitcoin, you know, at $50,000 a Bitcoin, right? Um, so you have to, if you're not involved, it's a great time to get involved, but this is exactly where the risk management comes in. You know, I, I interviewed Jack Schwager through mm -hmm. the, uh, with the Foundation for the Study of Cycles. Uh, a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, when you ask Jack, the author of all the Market Wizards books, you know, what do all the Market Wizards have in common? And he says, well, the only thing they really have in common is a pretty rigorous commitment to risk management. <laughs> and, and then he went on to say that 90% of risk management boils down to knowing when you're going to sell before you buy. Okay. Bye. So he took that from Bruce Kovner. That was a quote yep. from Bruce Kovner. And uh, so if anybody is interested in Bitcoin today, um, you have to ask yourself, well, when am I going to sell, right? So you, if you're going to buy, you know, even one Satoshi, right? I mean, you can buy $5 mm -hmm. worth of Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a Bitcoin. You don't have to buy $50,000. You can go on a weekly, you know, dollar cost averaging acquisition with $10 a week, whatever your budget is. Um, but you do have to be thinking about, you know, when are you going to sell? And if you ask yourself that question, you might say, well, I have no idea. I'm just getting started out here. I don't think I'm ever going to sell. Great. Well, that's going to tell you how much of your money, you know, you can afford to put into something like Bitcoin because, if you don't know when you're going to sell, then you basically have unlimited risk and you shouldn't put more money in than you can afford to see, you know, to never see again. Right. Yeah. So these are the questions that people need to ask themselves. And, um, you know, if you say, well, I'm going to sell it at one hundred thousand dollars. OK, um, that's a fair answer. It could go to one hundred thousand dollars. But I think if that's your target, then you have to be willing to also see it go to twenty five thousand dollars or even ten thousand dollars. And, um, and, you know, and you can live with that. So being able to think in this way, to think in terms of, you know, reward and risk um, is, I think, you know, a huge key to success in the markets and something that, you know, I'm certainly trying to be part of uh, bringing that education and that solution to people so that you can, you know, ask questions like this um, about Bitcoin in a more coherent and resilient uh, way. That's a great answer. Thank you very much, Thierry Duranton, for the question. Thank you very much, Richard Smith, for your extremely elucidating answer about the whole topic. If you'd like to ask a question, drop in, ladies and gentlemen, on social media and ask us a question wherever you're watching this live stream this evening. We'll be delighted to put your question to Richard. We've got one slightly more general question, taking us back into the cycle discussion we're jumping around this evening. Uh, Ron Beat, and uh, hi, Ron, how are you this evening? Do cycles really work or are we just curve fitting? I suppose that's in answer to your, your comment about the, uh, the way that you've been analyzing recently. Um, I've had, I've personally had a lot of success with cycles. Um, you know, at the foundation, we use, uh, statistical tests of significance. There's the Bartels test in particular, um, which has always been at the heart of how the foundation does its cycles analysis. You know, we do the, 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 uh, sine waves, you know, which, yep. which sine waves match the, the data best, the detrended data. 
but then do tests of statistical significance on those sine waves. And, um, and to me, cycles are kind of like uh, a wind sock at an airport, okay? So just because you have a headwind doesn't mean you can't take off, right? Like prices can rise into a declining cycle. <laughs> no right. doubt about it, right? Um, but you still want to know which way the wind is blowing. And I think that's what cycles help to do. Um, now, cycles can be um, extremely seductive, right? Sometimes you get these cycle calls that are made years in advance, and it just seems like pure magic. And you get completely seduced that, uh, that maybe you found the holy grail. And, you know, I think that's the wrong way to approach it. Um, so I, you know, bottom line is uh, cycles do work. I don't use them by themselves. I, of course, I always use them with risk management. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I tend to use them, you know, to confirm other um, things going on, especially around sentiment. I mean, you know, if you look back to say, well, let's take now, right? So uh, obviously, you've got a lot of froth in the markets, a lot of extreme speculative activity, um, you know, levels of call option buying versus put option buying, you know, that haven't been seen before, mm -hmm. penny stocks going nuts, Bitcoin at $50,000, you know, and then you look at that um, in conjunction with the fact that the S&P 500 is nearing, you know, a significant uh, two-year cycle top. And, um, and that, you know, gives you a little more pause about, well, you know, I probably shouldn't be backing up the truck and buying right now. So that's the way that I've historically um, made the most of cycles. Cycle bottoms tend to be more predictive than cycle tops, I found. Maybe that's just because markets overall are trending up. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, in March of, 2000, of 2020, um, you know, last year when we saw the market down 30, 40%, um, I was looking at cycles and the fact that cycles were bottoming, you know, right around that time, mid-March, uh, was something that gave me a little more confidence to, um, to do some, you know, uh, dipping of my toes and, you know, then knees mm -hmm. <laughs> into that water. So I think cycles can, you know, in conjunction with other things, uh, be a very useful tool for people to um, make better decisions in the markets. Cool. Thank you very much, Ron, for the question. Great answer. And so to move, jumping around here, I mean, we've, we've touched upon Bitcoin, touched upon these other, there are other issues. We'll get back to that, I'm sure, in a moment. We were in this discussion about market structure and yeah. we touch upon one thing, which is this concept of free. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, are markets really free? Well, uh, I don't think so. I am very concerned about this, you know, free services model, the user as product business model, right? Which has primarily come out of Silicon Valley, but it really drives a lot of the economy today. And uh, certainly the technology platforms and, you know, Robinhood is a technology platform. Um, market makers, wholesalers are technology platforms today. These companies have incredible computing power, right? And so when you have, you know, uh, certain parties that have um, unique access to data and unique access to um, 
get insights from that data that the rest of, you know, the public doesn't have access to, um, you know, I think that can lead to some distortions uh, that, that frankly concern me, you know, so I don't think free is free. Um, I don't really know what to do about it, Patrick, because, you know, ultimately I do believe in free markets and I think that people should have a choice. Um, I guess what I'm trying to do about it is just help, you know, be part of that education conversation so people understand better the trade-offs that we're yeah. making when we um, essentially give up our data, right, in exchange for other services. So that goes back to why I think Bitcoin is very important to the future of our economy, because I think increasingly people are realizing that their data matters and their data is valuable and not just to like sell for $15 over the course of 12 months, you know, to uh, advertisers, right? But data is what drives our economy today. And we are all producing and generating data of our own continuously, right? And that's being gathered and analyzed and modeled and, um, you know, used to basically predict and shape uh, the behavior of populations. And, um, you know, I personally feel uncomfortable about that. How about you? Oh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm with you there because I think the, the issue of where we're at, in fact, actually, uh, I'm going to give myself a plug at this point in time, Victory or Death, my book, because I'm discussing the, the future outlook of Bitcoin and where I think it's the, the Model T Ford of cryptocurrency still. And, mm. But also, I think you look at the idea of how much data there is around. I mean, it took us a long time to generate a petabyte of data. And then yeah. all of a sudden, you know, we had, we had someone on here three weeks ago, which is Paul Humphrey, who's the chief executive of BMLL, who are a big data company, genuinely. And they've got a 15 petabyte lake of data just about UK and US stocks and, and other stocks around the world. I mean, you, yeah. look at how long, you know, that data is incredible. I think you're in a great spot with the, the data questions. And actually, we've got some interesting questions coming in on the risk management side so let's get to it martin watkins previous guest on this show good evening martin and indeed i, I presume that you're sending this to us today from in some ways one of the homes of cryptography in the united kingdom for all those of you who watched that show all those weeks ago what are the lessons to learn when adapting conventional risk models to accommodate digital asset stablecoin and cryptocurrency cycles? Um, you know, I try to keep it really simple. Uh, you know, I know that at institutions, there's a lot more complex models than what, um, you know, the public uh, is likely to use. So especially to actually get the public to use risk management, we have to really keep it simple and make it engaging. Um, so, you know, bottom line is I, I pretty consistently just use things like volatility budgeting myself and standard deviations. Um, I love Jack Schwager's work on gain and pain ratios. So, you know, I don't see a lot of difference between, you know, traditional stock market use of uh, volatility, sharp ratios, et cetera, um, to applying them to the cryptocurrency markets as well. Um, some of your audience, uh, Patrick, I'm sure has more sophisticated analytics, um, than what I've been, you know, trying to bring to the public's attention, <laughs> but, uh, 
Um, I kind of treat it all the same myself and I like to keep it really simple. Excellent answer. In other words, uh, for all of the technology that there is out there in the world, you can still manage to apply trailing stops to digital assets as you were doing with trailingstops.com all those years ago. Yeah, well, you have to, you know, factor in the volatility, right? So one mm -hmm. of the first things I did was I developed a volatility based stop loss strategy. And, um, you know, you have to look at how much the price goes up and down, right? And so obviously, cryptocurrencies are extremely volatile. And um, sometimes, you know, trailing stops are kind of meaningless on that level. So I think that uh, it can work. I, you know, I haven't used trailing stops that much on cryptocurrencies. I think this is more of a kind of buy and hold situation right now or a buy and uh, hodl, <laughs> so to speak. And, um, you know, for something as transformative as this, it's, it's kind of an all or nothing bet. So, um, you know, I think cryptocurrencies um, are a little more volatile than you can easily apply traditional metrics to successfully. But I do think, you know, like I was doing some studies this past week on just looking at how, you know, Bitcoin could complement an existing stock market portfolio, right? Mm -hmm. Like people approach this as an all or nothing question, like Bill Gates saying, you know, Bitcoin's only for billionaires. No, you know, you can actually, it's an asset class practically, right? And you can incorporate it into an existing, um, you know, uh, portfolio. And it can actually, even though it's more volatile, you know, it might actually dampen down uh, your volatility a little bit because it's not correlated to your other holdings. So, you know, those simple things are still the most powerful things. And going back to, you know, an earlier question about curve fitting, when you introduce a lot of variables, you know, and a lot of complexity, you're at much higher risk of curve fitting, you know, than if you just try to keep it simple, stupid. And indeed, it's interesting, as you say, given that Bill Gates was a man who managed to diversify his portfolio across one operating system in one computer, <laughs> right. the world's richest man, when you think about it. I hadn't thought about that until you, you put it in my mind just a second. Great point. Um, Great point. Yeah. I do think you need concentration and, or, you know, I mean, if, if you want transformation, uh, you do have to take that risk of concentration, but look, you know, it's reward and risk. You got to understand both. You can't just be thinking about the reward. You got to think about the risk and you got to think about the relationship between the reward and the risk and how most people don't realize that you can tune that, you know, that those are dials that you can turn and, um, you know, on the, on the one hand, calm yourself down a little bit, you know? So, you know, to me, the biggest thing, Patrick, is we have to get ourselves in the right mindset, right? Mm -hmm. We have to be um, able to kind of withstand the siren songs of the markets, right? And that's all about expectations. Having expectations that are not completely out of whack with market history. And if people just understood expected value a little bit, um, you know, weren't so prone to having their expected values, you know, distorted by uh, the media and then arbitraged by the technology. <laughs> I think uh, uh, they do a lot better. Which leads us beautifully to the next question. So we've got a question from Mark Pilkington. Good evening, Mark Pilkington. Um, somewhat breaking the glass ceiling. Sorry, that was a terrible pun. What are the pros and cons of artificial intelligence applied to risk management? Well, 
I think that there are a lot of risks in that. I think that, you know, artificial intelligence, I've never really been a fan of that word. I don't really believe there is artificial intelligence. Um, you know, going back to kind of uh, Jared Lanier and his critique of uh, Google and Facebook today, they're actually um, applying machine learning to human intelligence and kind of modeling that, right? And, uh, and I think that there are a lot of assumptions that are built, get, get built into those models that aren't um, apparent in the models until uh, they are. <laughs> and I think we've actually seen some of that this year, Patrick, in the markets with firms like Renaissance Capital, you know, having a tough year for the first time in a while. And, you know, models are great until they aren't. Uh, black boxes are great until they aren't. And artificial intelligence, you know, is a black box in many ways. So, um, so I have concerns about that. I think there are real cons and I think we have to be careful. Um, obviously there's pros to it too. And, um, you know, I've studied neural networks, genetic algorithms, chaos theory, that was all fun stuff. I was at the Santa Fe Institute for a while studying oh. complexity science. And um, I loved it. It was a blast. Uh, but you know what? Those guys who were trying to model markets way back then using all that stuff, they went out of business. So, um, so look, we can't stop this train. Um, it's out of the station. It's a part of life. But I think it's a huge mistake to um, overweight its significance. Uh, I was listening to a podcast the other day of Tim um, Tim Ferriss, right? Interviewing yes. Jim Co Jim Collins, the good to great author. Mm -hmm. And Jim Collins was talking about um, Peter Drucker and uh, the effective executive author, and of course, management guru, you know, extraordinaire. And he said Peter Drucker's, you know, driving question was how do we make society both more productive and more humane? And I think that's a really important question today. And I think that we've certainly made incredible strides in productivity, but I think we're uh, at risk of, you know, jeopardizing our humanity. And, um, and I think there has to be a balance between those things. I think that's part of what the foundation for the study of cycles is about. Again, you know, it's about people. Right. It's not just data. You know, machines don't replace people. And there's a, you know, broader societal discussion about the relationship between technology and people um, that uh, I'm happy people like you <laughs> are out there having that conversation and stimulating it. It's it's a fascinating issue altogether. And actually, you raise a great question. I've forgotten about that somewhere. I've got to actually four or five copies of a book signed by the great, late, great Professor Mandelbrot. And yeah, mm. you're, you're right. I mean, all the chaos mathematicians have all of a sudden kind of just disappeared. I mean, right. they, they were whisk, whisked away on a melting cock snowflake or something. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. It's, it's interesting and fascinating to know you worked at the Santa Fe Institute. You researched at the Santa Fe Institute for a while. That, that must have been incredible. It was a lot of fun. And that was back in, you know, the uh, late, mid 90s or so. Um, when a lot of this stuff was coming online, right? And um, yeah, it was it was it was great fun. <laughs> Amazing altogether. Well, look, I mean, we were talking about this whole retail 
um, issue in the middle. And you've talked about the arbitraging of retail investors, which I think is a yeah. very interesting, uh, a very, very interesting and pithy way to put it. Um, and we're talking about free markets and also the issue of, of free in that respect. So where do you mm -hmm. actually stand then on this very controversial, suddenly hyper-controversial payment for order flow debate? Um, you know, the thing that concerns me, and I haven't heard anybody talk about this yet, Patrick, except me, um, is that, you know, payment for order flow, it's been around for a long time. There's price improvement. I get it. Um, you know, Larry Tab was just sharing that $3.7 billion in price improvement was handed back to retail investors this year. That's great. Um, but like, it just concerns me that we're driving the public into transactions for the sake of transactions, right? Mm -hmm. Like, are you, you know, is, are you saving $3.7 billion if you put a hundred billion dollars in the market and you lose $20 billion, right? So, um, you know, Robin Hood CEO in the hearing said that his data shows that his customers, you know, are ahead $35 billion of their net, you know, deposits. Um, I would love to see more of that data. You know, I do think that there is some hope that um, younger people are engaging in the markets more effectively. A lot of them didn't sell in the uh, downturn of February mm -hmm. and were actually buying instead. That's really encouraging. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, Robinhood makes its money for, on payment for order flow as a percentage of the spread. So to me, that clear, pretty clearly incentivizes them to uh, benefit from wider spreads and more illiquid instruments. And if we look at the GameStop you know, episode, I think we had some of the widest spreads in history yeah. in the options market, um, which I think provided uh, tremendous you know, revenues to Robinhood when those you know, numbers come out um in a month or two so that structural incentive of a retail broker dealer business concerns me it's yeah. hard to see for me how it's aligned with the best interests and outcomes of retail investors and i would love to be proven wrong man but it does concern me um and uh you know i it just um i i wish more retail business models were actually made money when their customers made money instead of just when their customers transacted. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's certainly very interesting given the fact that actually in order to give that price improvement, you take the orders away from the open market. So therefore you lose right. the equivalent of the amount of business midway between the amount of business transacted every day and NASDAQ and NICE ends up not happening. And you wonder, well, what would the market look like if that was actually all happening in one open market instead of going down this funnel towards payment for order flow, which is is the area where I really start to, to have a problem because all numbers are big in the modern stock market. So therefore, yeah. it's, it's you know, 3.7 billion. It's one of those things where sooner or later we'll be saying, well, you know, that's 
you know, that was in the days when 3.7 billion was big money. And, and that's, that's where I think we're at with this multi-trillion gazillion dollar stock market. Um, we're in the last 10 minutes here, ladies and gentlemen. I'm with Richard Smith. He has been illuminating us on a multiplicity of different topics during the course of the evening. He's the doctor of uncertainty is the way he's been described. And he's been discussing a huge amount of insights into markets, into cryptocurrency and into all sorts of other issues relating to the retail trader flow. So we're trying to promote retail trader longevity. That's actually going to be something we're going to be coming back to in a couple of future IPO vids, ladies and gentlemen. We're very interested in this whole technological change. You described yourself as a fintech entrepreneur in your bio at the start of the show. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about how you see financial technology changing markets and how is that impacting upon retail investors beyond what we've been discussing? Well, um, I think we've pretty much uh, succeeded in facilitating access to markets. And I think that's a lot of what technology has been about over the past 20 years. And I think there's a new um, uh, level of technology that is still ahead of us. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you'll like this analogy or not, Patrick, but I see a big analogy between the financial markets and the food industry. And I think at the retail level, financial markets have a lot in common with fast food restaurants from what we've seen, mm -hmm. you know, from uh, 25, 30 years ago when you and I were, were kids, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, it's a lot about the sugar and salt right now. And, you know, over the past 20 years, there's been a lot of evolution in our thinking about health and nutrition. And I think that there's a similar movement starting to happen, you know, in financial markets and capital markets where people are starting to think about, you know, what's sort of the analog of organic foods <laughs> in the capital markets, right? Because that's how you get longevity, right? Yeah. And it's not like you're just eating broccoli, but you're cutting back on sugar, you're cutting back on salt, you're doing a little exercising, you're aiming for longevity, for resilience, for 80 years of good living or more, right? And how yeah. do we start to think that way about our financial lives? And we've seen such huge strides in technology, especially around fitness and dieting, et cetera. And I think that that same kind of design and behavioral approach to um, you know, fitness and nutrition and health uh, has a big place in the financial markets. And that's something I'm personally really excited about. You know, how do I get, for example, you know, people to always answer the question of when am I gonna sell before I buy, right? So, when Jack Schwager says all the market wizards have that in common, that they use risk management and 90% of risk management is knowing when you're going to sell before you buy. Well, in one act, one action, you know, you can take a step 90% of the way to putting yourself in the company of the market wizards. <laughs> yeah. Talk yeah. about simple, man. So, uh, you know, that's where I think the next opportunity in technology lies. You know, um, the tech, you know, the, the data warehousing is there, the analytics are there. Now it's how do we help it actually reach the individual decision makers so that they can make coherent 
and resilient decisions, not just, you know, in one trade, but over a lifetime of, of uh, healthy engagement in the capital markets. Just quite a fascinating concept in terms of the analogy with the food industry. I hadn't thought about it like that, but I think it's a very interesting one, although at the same time, it's kind of interesting because therefore that means that in some respects, the, the people who are promoting this must be the sort of the West Coast hippies of the 1960s looking for a whole foods market. And, but it, it is fascinating in terms of how that develops. So yeah. then let's look at you know the new technology. Let's look at things like you've talked about Bitcoin. Now, you seem to me to be, you know, you're pro Bitcoin, but certainly pro cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. Talk us through that. Where do you think that potentially plays out to, and what's the advantage for people in that cryptocurrency economy? Well, again, I think it boils down to data and data privacy and data autonomy and data sovereignty, right? So you have all these models driving the economy right now where a very small group of people essentially you know, um, have access to the data that the rest of us don't. And, um, and they have data that the rest of us don't, right? So that's an issue of privacy for me. And, you know, I think that as people come to appreciate that more and more, that that data is going to really start to be treated as a currency, right? And you do that with blockchain and you do it with cryptocurrency. And, um, so, and the internet of things coming online, all these devices having to transact with one another, um, that's where it's going, right? And so uh, you have to be able to turn, transact in you know, less than a penny. That's very hard to do on the internet right now. And um, you know, I think that's what blockchain crypto are about to really give people more control and more autonomy and not just people, institutions. You know, I'm, I'm an investor in a number of companies that are developing uh, privacy solutions for corporations to be able to better control and disseminate their own data. You have, you know, Facebook and the Australian government going, yep. you know, uh, nose to nose right now. And Facebook, you know, looks like they backed off a little bit. So yep. these issues are coming to the fore. Um, it's more and more a part of our future. We have to be able to have sovereignty and control over our own data. And I think that's really what blockchain and cryptocurrency enable. That's their core contribution um, to the future economy. And I just think that's, um, you know, coming at us fast. How fascinating. So an innovation economy, but at the same time, you need to keep it simple. We're looking at the whole concept of an 80 year cycle within the foundation for the study of cycles itself, which as I mentioned earlier is a, is a handy full length Kondratiev wave plus, plus a, a decent Fibonacci number. We've turned full circle, but yet at the same time, we still have this problem of the, the fundamental, perhaps stubbornness, the well, the failings of the human condition, let's put it that way, when we're looking at the whole business of loss aversion, which remains at the epicenter of what's going on. I really enjoyed your fascinating pointers in relation to the whole concept of artificial intelligence. Thank you, Mark Pillington, for that great question. You're standing and you are in the footsteps of the great Edward R. Dewey, and you're a very modest participant in the Foundation's Study of Cycles. And I really applaud you for that, Richard Smith, given the fact that you understand so much about what's going on with our markets themselves. And in every possible sense, I think it's interesting because, yes, we have had, as you said, success in facilitating access to markets, but we're now on this cusp of a fabulous wave. Hopefully, this is the up cycle to managing to help 
a new wave of retail investors understand better, to follow what's going on in markets and be able to invest better. And I think that's an absolutely superb and happy and interesting and thought-provoking and upbeat note on which we're going to finish today's show because it's been quite a, a sensational discussion with a, a lot of data density during the course of our, our conversation. <laughs> I very, very much appreciate that. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for watching. Thank you for hitting that like button. Thank you to those of you who were asking questions this evening. Romby, Martin Watkins, lovely to see you again. Thierry Duranton and Mark Pilkington, amongst others. I hope I haven't missed anybody else out. I want to say thank you very, very much to the Doctor of Uncertainty. I have to say this evening, you've actually been the Doctor of Enlightenment at the same time as sprinkling a little uncertainty across our lives, Richard. It's really been a pleasure to have you during the course of this show. And well, at this point in time, ladies and gentlemen, what can I say? Thank you very much to the production team this evening. Thank you, Veronica. Thank you, Ola. Thank you, Beata. Thank you, Claude, and indeed also Pippa for all of your hard work. We've got a couple of sensational shows coming up in the near future. Next week, we've got a triple header. It's the whole stack of digital assets. We're going to have representatives of Expri, the exchange technology provider, Bay Markets, the clearing, central counterparty clearing technology provider coming from Scandinavia. And we're also going to have a representative, Eric, from Digital Asset. They're going to be talking about the digital asset stack and how you can manage to use that going forward with your new style digital markets. Coming up, the Brexit debate continues on the 9th of March. We mentioned last week the City United Project. Its chairman, Daniel Hodgson, himself an esteemed former chief executive in the City of London, of one of the London leading exchanges of the time, Life. Daniel's going to be joining us here. We're going to be talking about the Brexit opportunity once more, following in the footsteps, of course, of that marvellous show we had last week with Barney Reynolds. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of myself, Patrick L. Young, and particularly this evening's magnificent guest, Richard Smith, the Doctor of Uncertainty. Thank you very much for watching IPO Bid live stream. We'll be back next Tuesday. And of course, in the meantime, don't forget you can watch this at any point in time archive. So therefore, if you're watching it next week, I hope you're enjoying Bitcoin, which is obviously going to be priced at $175,000 or 4.75 or something somewhere within one or two standard deviations between. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Patrick.